Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome to episode 49 of the Lovable Podcast. This week, we're going to talk about the final and perhaps most essential ingredient in a purpose-centered life. It is counterintuitive, we try to avoid it, but what we need to be doing is trying to redeem it. What is this magic ingredient? I don't say this lightly, but that magic ingredient is your pain. Before we begin unpacking that, though, a couple of quick notes. Remember, the comprehensive, lovable study experience is available now. Everything that we've been working through in this podcast, all of the written content that goes along with the year of listening, loving, and living, as well as an individual and group study guide for lovable, it's available for free on my website. You can go there right now to get it at drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. Again, that's drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. When you get there, you'll also find all the instructions for ordering copies of Lovable for yourself or your small group or your organization. By the way, if you're listening, a huge shout out to Front Row Dads. Um, My time with you last week, speaking to you about Lovable, um, but even more importantly, participating with you in your ongoing conversation about how to become better husbands and fathers, that was life-changing for me. Thank you. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. Hey, and while you're at my website, you can sign up for my mailing list at the top of the right sidebar. You'll immediately get a free ebook entitled The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down. You'll also get a free sample of Lovable. And then each week, you'll get an email on Wednesday mornings with links to helpful content. All right, I think that is it. Let's get into this week's conversation. Instead of spending our lives avoiding pain, let's start redeeming it. Thanks, as always, for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 48 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled the good life versus the redemptive life. We have been talking for almost three months now about the practicing of our passions. This week, we are going to shift our focus slightly to something that will clarify not what your passion is, but the direction that you want to go with it. And that something is our pain. This week's episode revolves around a hard but simple formula. Passion plus pain equals purpose. In other words, when we practice our passion in the service of redeeming our pain, a sense of purpose is almost guaranteed. Before we get into this week's discussion, though, let's check in. I'm curious to hear, what successes are you having in practicing your passions, or where do you feel stuck? What insights do you have to share with us at this point, or what questions do you have to ask? And even more specifically, last week we talked about how the practicing of our passions can sometimes take us into vulnerable territory, so we need the people we belong to to support us and encourage us as we do. What have been your experiences with receiving support from your people as you attempt to practice your passions? And while you're thinking about what you want to share, uh, I will share with you an experience I had just last week uh, where really the support of my people was utterly essential (laughs) um, for the practicing of my passions. So um, I've I've shared here in recent weeks uh, that 
since I was a young boy, I had a terrifying fear of bridges. Um, don't know where it came from. It's always been there as long as I can remember. I'd huddle on the car, at the, on the floor of the car as a kid, and uh, as we went over big bridges over the Mississippi, and uh, you over water in particular, that's what terrified me the most. And uh, and so, like, until recently even, when we've gone over massive bid bridges, like the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, I, I shared with you that my wife and I have switched spots, and she drives the bridge, and I sort of accept that I can't conquer everything. Well, this past week, I was scheduled to uh, speak at and participate in a retreat, in the, a dad's retreat in the Florida Keys. And uh, again, Front Row Dads, by the way, huge shout out to that group. What an incredible bunch of, of men trying to sort out how to be better husbands and fathers and dedicated to that. It was awesome. And I wanted to be there. I wanted to do it. I wanted to speak. I wanted to participate. And it's in the Florida Keys. So I'm flying into Miami by myself, and I don't know what sorts of bridges I'm going to be driving over to get there, but I'm determined to do it. But it's taking me into very vulnerable, scary territory for me. Um, ironically, flying 33,000 feet high in the air didn't bother me too much, but this idea of going over bridges does. And uh, and so the the encouragement of my people to say you can do it, you know, make a playlist that pumps you up to go over the bridge or calms you down to help you go over the bridge. Um, there was never anybody along the way that said, you know, cancel it. You can always you can always skip it. Get out of it. You know, they said, no, this is important. This is something that you believe in. We believe in you going there. Even my wife, who's going to have to shoulder the, the, the full burden of things at home for a few days, you've got to get there. And we support you in, in facing your fears. So that was just a very powerful way in the last week that I drew upon the people that I belong to um, as encouragement and support to, to face my fears as, I, as pursuing my passion. So, um, so I'm curious to hear uh, for you any ways that you have drawn upon your people in as encouragement or provided encouragement to your people in the practicing of their passions any specific ways that come to mind or again in general um, things that you are inspired by right now with practicing your passions or struggling with would love to hear your perspectives carrie lynn writes good for you those darn bridges laugh out loud well you know and the funny thing was like none of them were nearly uh, you know, there was a number of them, but not, none of them were nearly as terrifying as that Chesapeake Bay Bridge. Which just, it just looks like it's arcing into the cloud that terrifies me. Um, and so uh, actually the anticipation of it was way worse than the practice of it, which is often the case, right, with our fear. Um, and so, yeah. Um, and so coming home, there was I was at ease with, with crossing them. But, but, uh, but yeah, the idea that I might have uh, foregone that experience because I felt vulnerable and, and a little scared. Um, what a what a bummer that would have been. And how often do we forego the experience of pursuing our passions and the life we value because something scary stands between us and it. And, uh, and we want to talk more and more about um, drawing upon our people and our own courage to, to move towards the things that we value. Deb W writes, for me, these past months have been a refreshing and exhausting unsticking of our work. We work with my husband's family, so the past 20 years have been rewarding and challenging, but have led to a feeling of stuckness over the last two to three years. My husband and I started intentionally making changes and pursuing our passions with the future of the shop, and it's led to more healthy interactions with his parents. Well, that is, honestly, Deb W, that, that has all the hallmarks of a really healthy place of belonging, um, that you and your husband felt the permission and the space to to be attending to and identifying your passions and that 
that your, your in-laws afforded you the freedom to express that and think about how you can practice it, to me that's exactly what a place of belonging represents, is the, the freedom to identify our true self and the encouragement to support it. So a beautiful story, and I think you kind of maybe are holding up an example for all of us to understand what does it mean to, to find a place where we really belong. Joy writes, pursuing my passions has meant saying yes and no. The no part has caused a shift in some relationships. I realize that some people have held me back, or rather I've allowed it. Ooh, that's important. As I move forward, trusting. Shame and guilt threatens to make me want to go backwards, but the freedom I'm experiencing encourages me. Um, so Joy, I really am grateful for that because I think it, it's the it's the counterpart to what uh, Deb said, right? That um, sometimes when we identify our true self and begin practicing the passions that drift up from that true self, our people, the people that we think are our people, they, they aren't supportive. We do get pushback, um, and there's a sense that um, they, they aren't supporting us in the way we desire, and um, that's, that, that's part of how pursuing our passion and our purpose begins to clarify our circles of belonging. It doesn't mean necessarily that we eliminate those people from our lives or we get angry at them, but we say... Oh, I get it. Like you're not you're not on the you're not on the inner circle of my places of belonging. You're more on the periphery, and that's okay. I need I need periphery people. Um, sometimes it does mean we need to cut people out because they're actively going out of their way to discourage or undermine through subtle forms of shame or passive aggression, you know, or even in more aggressive ways of undermining our passions. So sometimes sometimes we do need to set those more permanent boundaries. But a lot of times it's just a matter of getting clarity about okay. You're not the person I'm going to be going to with this. And I really liked what you said, that you initially framed it as they're holding me back, and then you reframed it as I'm letting them hold me back. And taking ownership of that, um, that uh, it's the, my failure to set a boundary on their influence on me that is actually contributing to me being stuck, um, that's a game changer. And Joy, I know it'll be a game changer for you, and, and we all needed to be reminded of that. So thank you. Shelly writes, I got my application all submitted for grad school and then the waiting game began, taking my mind at times back to self-doubt about my abilities. Then I remembered you had talked about needing to go back to the tools from before, so that's what I did. I went to my people, I remembered my worth, and I decided to trust and not worry. It's been a great shift from the old me who would have said nothing and just worried for weeks. Speaking my shame as it sneaks up has been life-changing. Um, I got, Shelly, as I was reading that, I got, frankly, I got chills. Um, to think about the the way that you you experience what almost always happens when we begin to pursue our passion, um, it takes us into new territory, challenging territory, and so almost always our self doubt and our shame starts to bubble up and surface again. You know, we might have feel like we've sort of overcome parts of it, but then these new parts of it or old parts, you know, resurface. And a lot of people will assume that that means that they are doing something wrong. Maybe they shouldn't pursue this. They're not up to it. And you did exactly what we need to do, which is at that moment, go back and draw upon our people, uh, go back and, you know, resume the exercises that helped reconnect us to our sense of worthiness so that we can come, come through that practicing of our passions, um, bolder more courageous, more confident, more peaceful. Um, you nailed it. Uh, gave me chills. I love it. Debbie E. writes, not sure if this relates to the topic. Realizing significant people in my life are holding me back. Can feel wrong to not listen to those authority figures. Yeah. It's one thing that as, as we went through the months of listening, 
uh, the months of embracing our worthiness and then into the months of loving, which was about revealing ourselves and finding places of belonging. Um, one thing we want to do, we don't want to like, so typically what we do is we, we listen to external authority figures, right? And that's almost exclusively what we rely upon as we don't trust our own worthiness and our own competence. And we don't want to swing all the way to the other, other extreme of only trusting our inner authority that comes from being tuned into the voice of grace within us, but we do want to establish a balance um, where we are seeking out trusted external authority and doing a good job of listening to our own inner authority and then, and then sort of um, discerning, going through a discernment process and even having people to help us discern. So these people are telling me this thing, but my instincts tell me this thing. The voice of grace is suggesting I do this. What do I do with that discrepancy? So I think, that's ex I think that's a very normal experience as you're beginning to trust your worthiness. Um, you begin to question external authority a little bit more. Um, doesn't mean you do away with them altogether. And it can be really helpful to have just one or two people who you can say, here's the gap between what my instincts tell me and what my peop these, these people are telling me. What are your thoughts about that gap? And, uh, and see if you can, can have a couple people whose wisdom you trust and you can, uh, can help them, have them help you walk, walk through that. So I think it's normal, um, and I think sort of there's, there's uh, next steps there that will help you quite a bit. Debbie E. adds, it feels scary to listen to myself more than, th than that authority figure. Yes. Um, it might even feel wrong. Um, you might feel shame bubble up. You might feel that you're betraying somebody. You might feel guilty. Um, there are all sorts of... Um, there are all sorts of ways we've sort of been programmed to mindlessly trust authority. Um, and um, what we want to do is mindfully trust authority. And so if your instincts are causing you to question the, the advice you're, you're getting or whatever, it's okay to question. Um, in the end, you might end up going with what that authority figure is recommending, and you might not. But um, it is cert there's certainly nothing wrong with uh, having your own process of discernment and uh, I think we all need to know that so so thanks for thanks for being vulnerable and sharing that Thanks as always everybody um, for really another great discussion about passion. We're gonna keep that discussion going right now by getting um, into um, uh, just really a whole new level today um, of this conversation by talking about one of, of passion's most essential companions and that companion is pain and I want to give today's topic plenty of context because I, I think it, we can easily start to hear when people start talking about pain, it can feel invalidating, it can feel minimizing, and I don't want it to do that. So I'm going to read an extended excerpt from Lovable before getting into this week's reading from the year of listening, loving, and living. And uh, this, this excerpt from Lovable is from chapter 28 of Lovable, which is entitled The Redemptive Relationship Between Passion, Pain, and Purpose. It begins on page 209 in the paperback version of the book, and here it is. As the third act of this book draws to a close, I want to speak now specifically to those among us who might, even after coming this far along the path of worthiness, belonging, and purpose, still feel purposeless. I want you to know there is nothing wrong with you. It is not at all unusual to practice a passion, to suffer for it, to be buoyed by the compassion of your people, and to still feel as if some essential element of your story is missing. This is because our passion, while exhilarating and energizing oftentimes, can still feel meaningless in and of itself. Sometimes our passion can feel like a Tasmanian devil spinning madly in endless directions. Sometimes passion needs something to contain it, to focus it, and to turn it in a direction that is good, holy, and meaningful. And sometimes that something is our pain, or more specifically, the redemption of it. 
We have a lot of important relationships in life, but among the most important is our relationship to pain, and we have all sorts of unhealthy ways of relating to it. We resist it, avoid it, ignore it, numb it, transfer it, and allow it to plunge us into apathy, despair, and fatalism. Our relationship to pain, our response to it, is usually determined by how we define pain. For our purpose, see what I did there? I want to suggest a definition of pain that has begun to transform my relationship to it. Pain is mess, misfortune, disorder, mistakes, and chaos that we feel really, really intensely. This definition helps me because it means I can start to relearn my response to really big pain by understanding how I relate to even the smallest messes. And if I think of it that way, then being a father is teaching me an awful lot about pain by confronting me with just how dysfunctional my relationship to relatively minuscule messes has been. What I mean is, before kids, I could mostly order my world the way I wanted to. I could put everything in its proper place, prevent most mistakes, and keep the chaos mostly at bay. But kids, sheesh, they multiply mess like wet gremlins. They shoot poop out of their diapers onto your lap, spray urine into their own faces when you open the diaper, vomit on everything, fall down and bleed on your new shorts, spill something as soon as the meal begins, and color on the walls. They get disgusting diseases with disgusting names like conjunctivitis. And on the way from the hotel to the Today Show, the little one in the white tights spills red smoothie all over her legs and your pants. Then, backstage, the older two spill coffee on themselves and orange juice on the floor. When you have kids, the other guests at NBC give you a lot of space. So as a father, I've had two options. The first is to announce we are simply not a mess kind of family and to ban any additional messes. Of course, I know that's a bad idea. My kids would feel ashamed of their natural mess-making talents. They'd feel controlled by and rebellious toward all my attempts to enforce the ban. Plus, it would be futile because the messes aren't going away. So instead, I've gone with another option, a new policy. It's okay to make messes as long as you clean them up. It turns out one of the great surprising pleasures of parenting is watching my kids clean up their disasters, and it's downright breathtaking to watch one of their siblings voluntarily join them in cleaning up the mess they've made. These days when a mess happens, I yearn for the moment when one of my kids sees a sibling laboring to clean up a mess, stops, takes a knee, gets right down into the chaos with them, and says, I'll clean it up with you. I'll redeem it with you. The whole thing has made me less resistant to little messes and to big pain, and even to God. Now I figure God is like a parent, and we're all like God's kids, and I'm guessing God has known from the beginning what I've had to learn as I go. A father can't meddle to prevent every mess, or his kids will hate him. And it wouldn't work anyway, because the kids are mess-making machines, so mess is going to happen one way or another. Yeah, I think God's been doing for eternity what I've barely begun to do. Just watching and waiting and anticipating the joy of his children coming together to clean up the mess and redeem the pain. Our relationship to pain doesn't change all at once, though. The other day, our family watched the movie McFarland, USA, a true story about a bunch of impoverished, blue-collar Latino boys who, spoiler alert, beat the odds and won the California State High School cross-country championship nine times. The boys in McFarland are great cross-country runners because they know pain. They spend long, grueling days in the fields, bent over in the blistering sun, picking crops. As the film progresses, one clear theme emerges. If you can welcome your pain, you can climb any hill. My kids love the movie. Then the next day, we went on our first family bike ride in our new town. To get out of our neighborhood, you have to descend a great slope that had Caitlin squealing with delight behind me on our tandem bike. To get back into the neighborhood, you have to ascend that same slope, and it had Quinn screaming with agony. I can't do it, Daddy, as his little legs pushed against the pedals. So I said to him, Buddy, remember McFarland. You can choose to walk away from the pain and walk the rest of the way up this hill. If you do, I'll understand completely and I'll walk with you. Or you can welcome the pain along for the ride and choose to keep going upward anyway. 
If you do, we'll keep pedaling with you. And for a day at least, he changed his relationship to pain. He embraced it, and he let it ride tandem with him up a really big hill. Neither stopped until they got to the top. Our relationship to pain changes slowly, one redemptive embrace at a time. This is true of physical pain and emotional pain. At the age of 10, sage and comedian Stephen Colbert experienced enough tragedy for a lifetime when his father and two of his brothers were killed in a plane crash. His other siblings were already grown and gone, leaving him alone with his mother. According to Colbert, he was saved from his grief by a number of blessings, including his mother's love, his faith, and his love for books. But mostly, he was saved by improvisational comedy. Before his first night on a professional stage, Second City director Jeff Michalski told him, you have to learn to love the bomb. The key to improv, the key to getting up on stage without a script, the key to making art in the midst of the mess is learning to love the mess. You have to embrace the fear of screwing up and the pain of failure. Colbert says, the discomfort and the wishing that it would end that comes around you, I would do things like that and just breathe it in. Nope, can't kill me. This thing can't kill me. Through improv, Colbert learned how to accept suffering, which, he adds, does not mean being defeated by suffering. Acceptance is not defeat. Acceptance is just awareness. You gotta learn to love the bomb. Boy, did I have a bomb when I was 10. That was quite an explosion. And I learned to love it. That might be why you don't see me as someone angry and working out my demons on stage. It's that I love the thing that I most wish had not happened. Colbert not only embraced his pain, he learned to love it. Sometimes redeeming our pain is about coming to value it so much we let it lead us. As my son was riding up the hill on his little mountain bike, my daughter and I followed on our tandem bike. She pedaled madly in the rear and I rode up front, steering us in the right direction. For some of us, I think purpose has to be like a tandem bike. Passion pedals joyfully and furiously from the back seat, and pain sits up front, steering our passion upward. In other words, pain doesn't have to be a roadblock to a purposeful life. Sometimes it can actually be a road sign. It points our passion in a holy direction. What I'm about to say is the closest I'll ever get to declaring something a rule. Where our most vibrant passion meets our most visceral pain, we discover a sense of purpose. It happens so consistently it's almost a natural law of the universe, like gravity. Our passion becomes our purpose when it redeems our pain. When you do what the little one in you loves to do in the service of redeeming that little one's pain, it feels like you're playing your one note and playing it beautifully. To be clear, I'm not saying redeeming your pain with your passion is the only way to redeem your pain, but I am suggesting it can be one of the most joyful, rewarding, and meaningful ways to do so. Once you've begun to redeem your pain with your passion, you will almost inevitably feel drawn to redeem that same kind of wound in the world as well. Perhaps that is what theologian and author Frederick Buechner meant when he wrote, The place God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Okay, and, and so with that context from Lovable, I want to get into this week's reading from The Year of Listening, Loving, and Living. It's week 48, which is entitled The Good Life versus The Redemptive Life. The film Jerry Maguire infused pop culture with a number of phrases that have stood the test of time, like show me the money and you complete me. But beneath the sports story and the love story, another story was playing out. The film opens with a sports agent in the midst of an identity crisis. In a moment of inspiration, he pens a manifesto, a mission statement for the future of sports agency. He calls for fewer clients, less money, a life of sincerity and passion. He titles it, The Things We Think and Do Not Say. And it's a total disaster. By the end of the week, he has no job, one client, an alienated fiancé, and only his loneliness to keep him company. As he walks through the devastation of his life, several scenes find him muttering, it was just a mission statement. 
I loved that movie. I saw it five times in the theater. Why? I think as a 20-year-old trying to find his footing in life, I was desperately needing to be reminded that you don't find a life purpose by searching for a life purpose. Purpose arises from fidelity to a passion. Purpose arises when we walk the hard path of, that our passion is leading us down. In these days, the hearts of people are filled with a deep yet vague sense of longing. In an age of instant recognition, overwhelming connectivity, and startling wealth, we find ourselves with an aching hollow inside of us. And everyone has an idea about how to fix it, but the solutions are like bailing water on the Titanic. The ship is sinking and the band plays on. And we all know it and we're all frustrated and scared and so many of us are wondering, what's wrong with me? Why doesn't the, the advice work for me? The solutions don't work because they are always focused on finding the good life. The so-called good life is a hollow promise. It's empty of the things we desire most, like passion, purpose, and peace. If we watched a movie about a person who lived the good life, raised in wealth, protected from hardship, inheriting the family business, retiring early and becoming a great shuffleboard champion, we would not come alive inside. We would be bored, restless. We would want more. We would be craving something else. We would be craving a story about redemption. Likewise, what we ultimately crave is a redemptive life. The redemptive life, like any good story, always begins with brokenness and pain. In our favorite stories, the character we love begins broken and haunted and full of demons. We ache for the character to overcome his demons. This is what the best stories give us. Demons silenced, brokenness mended, pain redeemed. To live a satisfying life, we must first feel our pain. The redemptive life, like any good story, always contains a moment of confrontation, a moment in which the character we love stops running from that slobbering beast of pain at his heels, turns around, stares deep into its eyes, and sometimes even growls back. This is the moment when a redemptive life really begins. And this is also the birthplace of peace, because peace is not the absence of pain. Peace is the deeply held confidence that all of our pain can be faced. The redemptive life, like any good story, always transforms the pain into something beautiful. And the moment of transformation is also the conception of purpose. A sense of purpose hums within us when we face the pain of our story and realize the transformation of it will be the direction of our life. Here's the problem with the redemptive life, though. Our hearts cannot yearn for both the redemptive life and the good life. The desires for each cannot coexist in our souls. I know, I tried. I remember the day when I turned to my wife and voice cracking stepped into all the pain I thought would annihilate me and said, my whole life has been one long, lonely scramble for perfection, one continuous search for the good life. I remember the months that followed, facing the isolation of my shame, my deep in the bone sense of not being good enough. And I remember how my heart began to rupture as a desire for comfort and ease gave way to another desire, a yearning to walk through the world with open arms, leaving cashiers and waitresses and customer service representatives and friends and a wife and children feeling overwhelmed by grace and marked by a sense of belovedness. I found this pain called shame at the center of me and the redemption of it became my purpose. What pain have you discovered inside of you? If you are longing for a purpose to your life, the redeeming of that pain is not a bad place to start. In what small way can you begin to redeem it? How will you eventually apply your passion to the redemption of your pain and find purpose in the mingling? How will your creativity transform your pain into something beautiful? You may find yourself today at a fork in the road. Down one path lies the good life, and down the other lies the redemptive life. I know which path I want to walk. Want to go for a stroll with me? So that is this week's reading, um, and there's, there's a lot there, and I'm interested in digging into it with you. A little bit of backstory behind this 
this uh, chapter from the year of listening, loving, and living. I actually wrote this uh, piece while I was at a Mumford and Sons concert in 2012, and it quickly became the mission statement for my blog, which was in its first year at the time. Um, and it really became the anchoring idea for Lovable. Um, but as Lovable developed, I, I sort of became aware that most of us just can't can't take in this very hard yet important message um, about our pain and how it fits into to a, a purposeful life without first working through um, a lot of that worthiness and belonging stuff. So in the end, this idea, which was originally like at the beginning of Lovable, got moved to the next to last chapter um, because being able to embrace it, I see as sort of a culmination of all the work that we've been doing. And so it's here at the end of this year of listening, loving, and living as well, um, or near the end, um, because there's a lot of work that goes into being able to kind of um, embrace it and start to think about how you want to to live out the redemption of your pain. So I'm curious to hear, you know, what are your reactions now um, as you are approaching the end of this year? What are your reactions to this concept of passion plus pain equals purpose or choosing to live the good life versus the redemptive life? Deb W writes, love the idea of giving each other permission to make a mess, no shame, and then helping each other clean it up. Um, yeah, you know, I think that is if we are going to be practicing our passions, if we are going to be living vulnerably in relationship, we have to give all sorts of permission for mess making because we're going to make a mess of it. Um, we have a new, uh, my business partner and I, <laughs> we have a new philosophy. I might have mentioned this last week um, in terms of running our practice, and we call it the over, over blurt um, permission, which is just say it make a mess of it, we'll clean up the mess together, but we need to be open and honest and vulnerable about what's going on. So I think we need to over-blurt in our lives a little bit more um, and, uh, and and just then focus on cleaning up the, the aftermath of that together. I think that that can build companionship and it can build um, momentum towards practicing our passions. So thanks for pointing out that idea, Deb. Joy writes, my greatest pains have also helped me experience my joys in a deeper and more grateful way. That's a that's a really uh, wise observation, Joy, and I think it points to one of the most important differences between the good life and the redemptive life, which is the good life. Uh, in, in the good life, the goal is happiness. In the redemptive life, the outcome, the actual outcome, is joy, and that those two things are very different. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances happening and playing out in exactly the ways that we wish. And so happiness is momentary and transient because circumstances change. Um, but joy is a state of being. Joy is a place within us that we can access and live from that says, I can face my pain. I can endure my pain. I can redeem my pain. Um, I, can, um, I can experience sorrow and know that it's not the last word. Um, and, and so joy, whereas happiness often feels like euphoria and elation, joy often feels like peacefulness. Um, and that's a very important distinction between the good life and the redemptive life. Um, are you trying to orchestrate circumstances so you'll be exceedingly happy for a while? Or are you trying to learn how to relate to circumstances so that you are enduringly joyful and peaceful for a very, very long while? <laughs> A very important distinction. Thank you for that. Joy writes, I can see this reading is very personal to you. Thanks for your vulnerability and leading us well. Uh, you're welcome, Joy. I think it's probably one of the more personal readings in here um, because, you know, I didn't realize I didn't realize when I started writing uh, what why I was writing, uh, what I was redeeming, 
Um, it started out in theory, I'm going to practice my passion, and which is writing, and maybe that'll help my therapy business a little bit, and that would be great. And it was in my fourth blog post a month into writing publicly that I wrote a post about shame and went, oh, there was something about writing this that mattered to me more than anything else. Um, and that what's evolved then over the last seven years is, is an increasing clarity that my writing is about redeeming the shame I experienced um, and in uh, doing that with my passion for writing. Um, and so uh, that, that clarity had developed over time. And, and it's a good reminder that as we practice our passion, we're, we're looking for those moments where we go, oh, that's, that's the pain I'm needing to heal here. That's the pain I'm needing to redeem. That's where I'm, that's the direction I'm going to head with my, my passion. Um, you know, if I'd have written a book that wasn't about shame, um, it, it, writing, you know, my passion would have still been present writing, but the pain piece wouldn't have been. And so I don't think writing, it would have felt nearly as meaningful and purposeful. So, um, so yes, Joy, thanks for pointing that out. This, this, this post was like a, a new step for me back in 2012 and gaining some clarity about what my my pain was and how I was going to redeem it. W adds, as always, your vulnerability and desire to go first through the redemption process is inspiring. Proud of you. Thank you, Deb. Um, I, I don't know if I don't know if living a redemptive life is addictive, because addiction implies you need it. But it certainly becomes a great habit um, when you, you start to learn over and over that all the efforts I've made in my life to avoid my pain, push it down, not pay attention to it hope that it'll go away, hope that it'll take care of itself. All of those things limited me. All of that made my life smaller and more hidden. And now that I'm starting to, to welcome my pain into the light, to, to become familiar with it, invite it along for the journey, let it guide me, um, my life is, is bigger, more joyful, more peaceful. So it's, it's, a, it's a self-reinforcing habit. And, uh, and so here I am seven years down the road, and uh, I just... The idea of doing anything different um, would would feel um, would feel like a huge bummer. <laughs> so I am so glad to go first. Um, it's it's a habit I'm enjoying. Stephanie writes: Dirty pain is continually marinating in the misery without hope. Clean pain is accepting the difficulty and allowing it to reshape your life into something more meaningful. Um, you know, I think that that's like it's a really profound idea. Shelley, or Stephanie, sorry, um, that our pain is the, the quality of it isn't determined by it, but by how we relate to it, that it is in our relationship to it. Do we merit, do we, do we, do we sink into it like quicksand and allow it to sort of define our worldview and our expectations for life? Or do we accept it, embrace it, and do we become the quicksand that sort of absorbs it, you know? Um, and that how we relate to it defines the quality of it. I think that's really pretty profound. Thanks, Stephanie. Stephanie writes, My fidelity to my purpose was birthed out of the infidelity of a person. The pain from my husband's unfaithfulness was so excruciating. However, it led me to experience the grace that God offers and gave me the desire to find my true passions through it. What an unbelievable example, Stephanie. Um, it's, uh, you know... If someone hasn't gone through it, they can't fathom the the pain of infidelity. It's it's deep and it's complete when it's happening. Um, and uh, I'm 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 guessing I'm pretty certain that that the, the 
that the experience of that has shaped the direction um, that you've proceeded from. Um, and that if, if you know, in a, in a good story, I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but like if you're, if you're reading a good story or watching a movie and something utterly painful happens, and if by the last scene of that story, you can't go, oh, that's why that needed to happen. That's how that factored into the shaping of this character or the, the, the telling of this character's story. You kind of go, well, why, what was the purpose of it? Why did it have to be there? That seems silly. They could have cut that. You know, and I think we want to approach our lives the same way. That if when you go through something as deeply painful as infidelity, we want to say, if by the end of my story, I don't, I haven't, I haven't crafted a life in which that that pain is redeemed in such a way that it makes sense how it fits into the overall trajectory of things. I've I've left I've left a loose end hanging, you know, and and that that's what the redemptive life is like. Is like I'm looking for loose ends. I'm tying up the loose ends that are my pain and figuring out how they fit into my story. Um, it's really, really powerful, Stephanie. Thank you. Deb W. writes, completely agree. Once you get a taste of wholehearted living and relationships, it brings the bar way up and nothing else satisfies. That's so good. That's so good. Yeah. And it's like the, it's like the only bar in life that isn't about performance, right? It isn't about doing it right or getting it perfect or anything like that. It's just about kind of, in, it's, it's, it's the direction. It's I'm living wholeheartedly. That means vulnerability. That means owning my stuff. That means redeeming my pain. And I just keep letting that be the direction that I head with my days. Um, and it's messy. It doesn't go great. Um, but yet it's a bar that's pretty, uh, that we want to keep, keep reaching for. I love that, Deb. Thanks. Shelly writes, thank you for sharing your journey. I actually woke up this morning and gazed out the back door thinking I had a choice to choose how to live my life. I saw two paths. So for you to discuss the good life versus redemptive life helps to center me. I definitely want to choose the redemptive life. I have found myself asking God, what do I do now? And, and why types of questions in the midst of a health procedure next Tuesday. It can go two different ways, and I pray that it will be another opportunity to live a redemptive life. I pray that the outcome will bring more joy and peace I have never experienced before. I feel God led me here this morning to hear your words at just the right moment. You know, and this is, gosh, Shelley, I so, I'm so grateful for your vulnerability in sharing that because it's important for you to hear and it's important for everyone to hear that we don't wish pain on anyone. We don't go out of our way to create it. There is no way any of us are sitting here caring about you and going, well, I hope that the, that, you know, that this diagnosis goes badly for you so you have something to redeem. That's ridiculous. Um, we don't wish for or seek pain. There will be enough of it that happens on its own. Um, and, and when it does, the question is, do we relate to that pain from the perspective of the good life that says, I didn't get the diagnosis that I wanted, and so now it's all over? Or do we look at it from the perspective of the redemptive life and say, this is going to be hard, this is going to be painful, and, uh, and maybe the redemption of it isn't clear to me right away, but I will not let go of this pain until I have um, I figured out how I'm going to redeem it. I think that's what, that's what we're talking about. You know, there's a story in the Bible um, where, oh boy, is it Isaac? Is it Isaac that's wrestling an angel and uh, he refuses to let go? The angel breaks his hip and he refuses to let go of the angel until he's received a blessing. And, uh, um, and, and so I think that's what we're talking about. We refuse to relinquish our relationship to that pain until we've understood the blessing that is going to arise from it. Um, so Shelly, we, we're with you. We, we hope for the best news 
and will be with you even in the worst news. Deb F. writes, yes, facing the pain, that is what this whole year has been about for me, facing the fact that I was not considered a valued member of my extended family, to pretty much choose to distance myself with love and find the tribe who does appreciate, who does appreciate me for who I am. It's been a tough journey, but very rewarding. I am building a life that I, lo I love rather than living one I tolerated. Wow. That's a powerful last phrase there, Deb. I'm building a life that I love rather than living one I tolerated. So good. Um, and I, you know, I suspect as you've gone through that pain of recognizing that, that your family isn't a place where you truly belong, that the way that that pain will get, get redeemed is by going out into the world to pe create places where people do truly belong. <laughs> um, to say, I know what it feels like to not, not belong and not be accepted for who I am. So I'm going to create spaces where others don't have to go through that. Um, and I know that's what you're up to. And, uh, and so it's a beautiful way that you're redeeming this, this very tough year. Brenda writes, so the good life is addictive. The redemptive life is disciplined. Ooh, I love it. Um, I'm, yes, let's say that. The good life is addictive. We get the high of the temporary success, the temporary comfort, temporary um, happiness, and then it goes away, and now we have to go hunting for it again. Whereas the redemptive life is a disciplined practice of something rather than um, kind of a jonesing for the next, the next hit. I think it's a great way to describe it, Brenda. Thank you. Okay, so let's keep this conversation going right now by focusing on one thing we can do this week to increase our clarity about the parts of our story that are still waiting on a little bit of redemption. It's the week 48 practice. Sometimes discovering our passions provides a satisfying sense of purpose, but more often than not, our passions alone feel somewhat directionless. For instance, someone can discover a passion for playing the guitar, but playing the guitar in and of itself rarely feels like a life of purpose. This is because oftentimes our passions are placed in us so that we might approach our pain with them and seek to redeem our pain through them. When what we love to do helps to heal the pain inside of us and even the pain in the world, there is no greater sense of purpose and satisfaction. This is why so many musicians end up writing songs about their heartbreak. The guitar becomes a way to work through their wounds. So far, in these weeks of loving, hopefully you have gained significant clarity about the nature of your passions. However, it is quite possible you are still unclear about their direction. You might be saying to yourself, I want to do this thing, but to what end? We seek clarity about how to live out our passions, but we rarely look in the one place we'll find it, our pain. In a good story, the pain the protagonist has endured gets redeemed by the final scene. It doesn't necessarily go away, but the healing of it produces good things in the character and in the story. Think about your life as a story. What pain did you experience in the early scenes that continues to impact you today? Illness, loneliness, rejection, abandonment, disappointment, persecution, discrimination, fear. This list could go on forever because the forms of pain go on forever. So this week, it is time to get quiet again and focus on your own story. Take time to reflect on the following two questions. Number one, as you think of your life like a story, progressing toward a conclusion in which your pain gets redeemed, what part of your story lacks resolution, healing, or redemption? Number two, how might your passion be directed toward the redemption of that pain? As you meditate upon this, list the ways you might thus live out your passion. Somewhere in the midst of your pain, over time, you will begin to discover a sense of purpose. Shelley writes, it's a mind shift for me for sure to invite and welcome the pain along for the ride, but I'm excited to really try this and see how it helps me. Um, so Shelley, I, I'm, that, again, I'm thrilled to hear that. Um, and... I think what your experience is going to be 
Um, sometimes some of the pain that we allow in at first, we've been keeping it at bay because it really, to fully allow it, to fully invite it in, is truly painful. Um, I can remember the very first time I sort of let my awareness of my shame come in. And I mean, I it hurts so, so bad. Like, I cried in a way that I felt like I would never stop. Um, but then then that first wave of it was gone and all the, and I was left with a, a version of it that I could handle. Um, and what you're going to discover is that there's pain and there's suffering. And we've talked about this, I think, at other places in this podcast, and I know I write about it in other places. And there's great spiritual leaders who talk about this better than I do. But there's pain, um, the, 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 the reality, the hard realities of our experience. And then there's our resistance to feeling pain, which is suffering. Um, and so what we discover when we begin to welcome that pain in is that our suffering quickly begins to diminish. The, the ways we feel anxiety about experiencing our pain, um, the ways that we feel shame about having our pain, all that sort of resistance to it goes away. So all of that suffering so slowly starts to diminish and you're left only with your pain. And then you discover that even though your pain really hurts, it's manageable. Um, without the additional layers of suffering to it, you can handle it. So I think that's what's going to happen for you. I'm, I'm excited to hear kind of as we go through these next few weeks if that's uh, indeed how it plays out for you. Stephanie writes, yes, your words resonate so deeply. That's it. Thank you for putting language to my heart and my desire. I now endeavor to help others find their own identity through their pain and how to use it to have joy, peace, and fulfillment no matter what the circumstances are. That's it. That's it. You know, this, this idea of the redemptive life, we, we really take back um, responsibility uh, for our joy. That that's the, that is the very, the very one very good way in which the redemptive life immediately starts to redeem things as we get to take, you know, take responsibility back from the sense of chance about our, our well-being. Brenda writes, I'm tempted to want to force redemption before God does so I can wrap up the story faster. Good, yeah. I also think adults should be able to clean up their messes better than children when they often don't, and certainly not alone. So much wisdom there, Brenda. Um, if we turn the redemption of our pain into another item to check off of our to-do list or another item to accomplish or achieve, what we're doing is we're trying to sort of outwit our pain, right? Or find a shortcut to a sense of purpose by making it happen fast. Um, and I just read a great book by Stephen Pressfield, The Artist's Journey, in which he argues that actually the, redempt the redemption of an artist's pain doesn't happen in any one project. It's his body of work over the course of decades <laughs> that is this gradual redemption of his pain, essentially, is what he's saying. And, uh, and yeah, so it's not something to rush through, and it's maybe not even something that's ever totally finished. Um, and I also appreciate what you said about, you know, we think that adults should be really good at cleaning up mess and that they should be able to do it all on their own when in a way like let the little one in you clean up the mess uh, let it be sort of a mess of the, the cleaning process be a mess of its own um, a learning process of its own and certainly don't feel like you have to do it on your own invite other friends into it absolutely thanks brenda all right, everybody, thanks again um, for, I, I think, of all of our discussions to be talking about our pain like this is, is the bravest discussion we've had. Thank you. Um, next week, we're going to talk about what to do when we are capable of practicing our passions and redeeming our pain, but our fear is telling us that we can't. It'll be week 49 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, What to Do When Our Feelings Are Lying to Us. <laughs> Until then, remember, you are lovable. 
Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Thank you.